Good morning. If you look up at the TV screen, you will see a lock. Now, I wager that everyone in here know what a lock is. You know essentially how it works, how it functions, and you have a slight appreciation for one. Indeed, we use it to uh, lock up our valuables, including our homes, so on and so forth. But on this next picture, you see the inside of a lock. And I would suspect that not many of us know what these parts are. Uh, we don't know how they work together. Uh, we don't know what they're called. We don't know the inner workings, so to speak. We're not sure how it functions. But we could learn. And I suspect that the more we learn how this lock functions and the inner workings of it, we will have a greater appreciation for exactly what it is and what it does. Now, this morning, I'm going to be speaking on the atonement. Specifically, I'm going to be speaking on what's called penal substitutionary atonement. And I'm going to explain to you what that is as I go along. Like the lock, you might be surprised to know that you will have a very, you'll have a general idea of what this is. You will be familiar with it. But also like the lock, there are some inner workings that most of us don't know how the pieces fit together, how they move, how they function to make the thing uh, serve its purpose. So my goal today is to bring us just a tiny bit closer to understanding what the atonement is and how it works. And in doing so, I hope to give you a stronger impression on your mind, on your heart, as to what Christ did for us. So I'm going to be proceeding in the following way. First, I'm going to define some terms. And I want to be upfront with you. This is where the heavy lifting is going to take place. Um, I'm not by any stretch going to try to turn this into a seminary course, but it's the nature of some material that it's just difficult to learn what it is, and it takes some, it takes some intellectual struggle, so to speak. You have to, you have to engage your mind to think about these things. And so I'm going to go slow, slowly through this first part in order for us to get it. After that, I'm going to go a little quicker through the biblical basis for the atonement. I'm going to talk a little bit about its significance. By no means can I exhaust it. It's the greatest event in human history. And then I'm going to touch on a few objections. They serve to clarify some points. So let's begin. What is the atonement? Well, there's a broad sense of the term. And there's also a narrow sense of the term. The broad sense of the term is reconciliation. Now, most of our theological terms that we get are from Greek or Latin. Atonement is not one of them. It actually comes from Middle English. Middle English is somewhere between like 1150 and 1470. And the original meaning is an at-one-ment. Now, does anybody know who uh, made the first English translation of the Bible 
from the Greek. Does anybody know who did the first English translation of the Bible from the Greek? I'll give you a hint. 1526 and... Uh, Shout it out if you, if you know. <laughs> William Tyndale is the answer. He did the first English translation from the Greek. Now, a lot of folks know John Wycliffe, but he did it from Latin. So John Wycliffe was already gone for 150 years. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's in my Bible. But if you were to look at a Tyndale 1526 English translation, you would see this. All things are of God which hath reconciled us and hath given unto us the office to preach, what? The atonement so that's one of the ways that the word can be used. And that's important because uh, if you were to ever do a word study or a topical study in this, you would see that a lot of folks say, this is what atonement is. It's reconciliation. Well, that's not quite the whole story. Uh, in fact, if you want to understand what your Bible means when it talks about atonement, it's going to be in this more narrow sense of the usage. And in this narrow sense, the atonement is the means of reconciliation. It answers the question, how do you accomplish reconciliation? How do you get right with God? Um, how do you achieve peace with God? That's what religion is aimed to do. You're supposed to make peace with the divine. And so, I want to stress to you that this is the way we need to understand the term if you want to understand what your Bible means by it. It's going to be in this narrow sense, not the broad etymological sense, not the way the word was originally used. So, how does Paul answer this question? How do we achieve peace with God? Well, Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's how reconciliation with God occurs. The death of Christ is the vehicle or the instrument that leads to reconciliation. So think about it this way. It's like, it's like the long line that a rescue helicopter uses to save a drowning victim. Anybody ever see the Guardian? Or you see a rescue helicopter, they fly out over the sea, right? And they, drop, they drop the line. Well, in this case, the water is your sin, and the helicopter is salvation. That long rope is Jesus' death. That's the atonement. It's the thing that you grab onto and it hoists you up to salvation. That's what the atonement is. It's the means, it's the medium, it's the vehicle, it's the thing through which we get there. So the question then becomes, well, how exactly does the death of Christ reconcile us to God. How does it do that? Well, in two ways. First, the first way is by canceling sin. And I'm using the word canceling instead of forgiving here on purpose. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But by canceling sin, 
and by satisfying God. The first way is called expiation. You can write that down if you want. The second way is called propitiation. The first way removes or annuls, A-N-N-U-L-S, or cancels sin or the effects of sin, which is guilt. The second way uh, appeases or placates or pacifies or satisfies divine wrath. That's what it does. The first is horizontal. The cancellation of sin is like the sin offering uh, in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 16, uh, you, would see, you would see it talks about the law of atonement, and there are two goats that the high priest has to deal with. There's one goat where the high priest has to uh, take and lay his hands on the head and confess all the sins of the people. There's a transfer there, and this is called the scapegoat, and they send that goat away into the wilderness. Now, that is prefiguring or symbolizing the taking away of guilt and sending it far away. What does Psalm 103 say? It's as far as the east is from the west, so God has what? He's forgiven their sins, right? He separates them from the east from the west. That's, that's the visual imagery the people in the Old Testament got. They send that goat away. What about the other one? Well, the other goat is a sin offering. It's the propitiation. It's the goat that they have to slay and take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. That's what satisfies divine wrath. So Christ's atoning death does both of these things. It does these two things. It expiates or cancels sin, and it propitiates propitiates or satisfies God. That brings us to the definition of penal substitutionary atonement. What is it? Well, I'm going to give us uh, four ways of saying the same thing. So I'm I'm going to give the definition here four different times. It's going to start from a more basic and get a little more difficult. The point of it isn't to see how difficult we can get, but the lengthier definitions reveal more insight into what it is. So I'm going to start with uh, a definition that's easier to follow, and we're going to get all the way up to John Calvin, and we're going to all sit here with our mouths open. So, penal substitutionary atonement is the doctrine that God inflicted upon Christ the suffering which we deserved as the punishment for our sins. And as a result, we no longer deserve punishment. Penal substitution is the doctrine that God inflicted upon Christ the suffering that we deserved as the punishment for our sins. As a result, we no longer deserve punishment. Now, this definition leaves open the question of whether God punished Christ or not. We're not going to get into that right now. That's not what we're doing. But the suffering that Christ did would have been our punishment for our sins. Next, we have broken God's law 
This is the same definition. It's just said a little differently. And deserve to be punished for that. But God, in his love, provides a substitute, his own son, who will take the punishment so that we don't have to. A lot, of, a lot of us knew that already, or we've heard it a lot. That's penal substitutionary atonement. You've, we, we don't use those terms all the time, right? Hardly ever use the terms, but that's what it is. The Father, because of his love for human beings, sent his Son, who offered himself willingly and gladly to satisfy God's justice, so that Christ took the place of sinners, That's the substitute part. The punishment and penalty, there's the penal aspect, the penalty we deserved was laid on Jesus Christ instead of us, so that in the cross, both God's holiness and love are manifested. We have the general idea of what atonement is in this narrow sense, okay? All right, here's the last one, and then most of the heavy lifting is done. All right, here's John Calvin. Here we go. Let man be told, as the scripture teaches, that he, man, he was estranged from God by sin, an heir of wrath, exposed to the curse of eternal death, excluded from all hope of salvation, that then Christ interposed, took the punishment upon himself, and bore what, by the just judgment of God, was impending over sinners." with his own blood, expiated the sins which rendered them hateful to God. By this expiation, satisfied and duly propitiated God the Father, by this intercession, appeased his anger, and on this basis, founded peace between God and men, and by this... What does that say? Thank you. Secured the divine benevolence toward them. Now that is cool. We would, now, we would, do, we would do fine just talking about this for the rest of the time that I'm up here. This is good. This is good stuff. So that's what penal substitutionary atonement is. And that's what it does. These two aspects, this horizontal aspect of our sins being transferred or imputed is the word. It's a legal term to Christ. And by that, they are, we are separated from them. They're canceled. And then there's a vertical aspect, that Christ's blood pacifies or satisfies divine wrath. Okay, what's the biblical basis for this? I'm going to go through these quickly. The point is not to meditate on each one, but just to see there's a biblical basis. Exodus 12, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, They shall take some of the blood and put it on the lintel of the houses where they eat. You see this while Israel is in Egypt. You see this type of atonement. Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Zechariah 12.10, I, the Lord, will pour on the house of David the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. 
Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He gives his life for many. John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God, he takes away what? The sin of the world. That's what he does. He takes it away. 1 Corinthians 15, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Many Bibles in here would say propitiation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 9.26, Christ has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. Talk about what that's referring to in a sec. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ himself also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God. 1 John 2, if anyone sins, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, or the propitiation, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Isaiah 53 is the crowning, the crown jewel, if you will, of the topic. They didn't know who Jesus was in the Old Testament, but you could tell the New Testament writers thought that he was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And if you can't quite see that, just listen to not necessarily who this person is, but listen to what the servant does. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, 
and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he had suffered, he will see the light of life, and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. That's what he did. There is a clear substitution that this man, whoever he was, and he was to be found out that it's Christ in the New Testament, took the place of sinners. So, significance. Five quick things. Why the atonement? Well, first and foremost, God's perfect justice demands it. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong, the scripture says. Exodus 34.7, God will by no means clear the guilty. He can't. First John says, in God is light. In him is no darkness at all. How do, you, how do you make peace with perfection? If you have the slightest blemish, you're done. You can't. So his justice demands atonement. Our depravity requires it. We are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. All have turned away. Together they've become worthless. We are utterly unable to make peace with God by ourselves. So he is the channel of salvation for all men. The grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all men. Ephesians 2 tells us that the Gentiles were without hope and without God, cut off from the promise. If you got no hope, I mean, that's the thing that gets people going still. If you have hope, we had no hope without the atonement. It was necessary. It is the ground for continual cleansing for saved men. Are you saved and you still feel miserable in God's sight sometime? Or sometimes you think, what can I do to please God? That question is futile. If you are a believer, it's a senseless question. You do not have to propitiate God anymore. Christ died once for sins, the just for the unjust. It is finished. Tetelestai, that's how you pronounce it, remember? It's finished. It's done. You don't have to please God anymore. God was pleased with Jesus' sacrifice. What we have to do is accept it and live it. That's what we do. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Not he's kind and he understands we're trying really hard. He's faithful and just. The justice was already satisfied. That's what's cool. It's done. And that's why he's faithful to act on that. He can act on justice satisfied. You don't have to try to please God. When you sin, you're not kicked out of the family. You just remove yourself from fellowship. How do you get back into fellowship? That's what 1 John's about. You confess your sins because he's faithful and just. You already have your, your sonship or daughtership, but if you want fellowship back, you confess and try to live with Christ as your Lord, Lordship. All right, last one. Foundation of hope of glory. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Scripture says. 
Now, just quickly, what is the hope of, of glory? Jesus Christ was both our substitute and representative for God. And these two aren't the same thing. A substitute is like a pinch hitter in American baseball, right? If you want, if you want to call in a pinch hitter, then the, the hitter who's already in line, he sits down, and you get somebody else who comes up to bat. Uh, they make a hit or they strike out. But in no way, no matter what that substitute does, it doesn't affect the batting average of the first guy, right? He substituted. He took his place in that. However, Jesus Christ is also our representative. A representative is more like, he's like a proxy at a shareholder meeting. That's William Lane Craig's example. I'm stealing it. But it's like this. If, if you own stock in a company and you wanted to go to this meeting, but you can't attend, and they're going to vote on something, you tell your proxy, hey, you can vote for me. And when, when that person who's in your place votes, it's not the case that he just substituted for you, that he's going and, it doesn't, and it's his vote. No, it's your vote through him. You are voting because he's doing it on your behalf. That's what a representative is. So Romans says that we've been buried with Christ through baptism. Christ was not only our substitute, but he's also our representative. Your sins and mine were literally punished already through Christ's death. And so the resurrection that followed afterward, this is, this is cool. This is how organic the resurrection is. It's not just that, that Jesus rose to prove a point. It's that Jesus rose because it would have been illegal for death to have a hold on him. The same way a prisoner serves 40 years for something he did, he can't, as soon as his sentence is done, it's done. That's it. He can't stay in jail anymore. That wouldn't be just. Well, Jesus Christ took the penalty for sin, and now... He's no longer able to be punished. That's why he has to be raised from the dead, okay? And that's going to be you and me at the end of the age. Because our sins are separated from us now, death no longer has a claim. We are legally uh, pardoned, if it is. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter if you still feel personally guilty. That's not the point. The point is that death has no claim on you now. There's no claim for your sin. They are separated. If you die, you will be raised back to life. You come back physically like Jesus Christ did. That's pretty cool, isn't it? All right. Let me wrap this up. Here's a few objections that I'm, I'm going to kind of run roughshod over these because you would be introduced to something like this if you ever cover this topic, and they help to maybe clarify some things, or bring new ideas to mind. That's why we do them. I'll go through them quickly, but here they are. Here's an objection. It's unjust to punish the innocent in place of the guilty. Hey, that's what Ezekiel says. It says, a father will not die for his son's sins, and a son won't die for his father's sins. Everybody will, be, will, will die for their own sins. Well, that's just what God does with Jesus, right? He punishes the, the innocent in place of the guilty. Therefore, God's unjust. Response, it's certainly unjust to punish somebody who's unwilling and innocent, but Christ was willing. Also, while Jesus was personally innocent, he was morally, or I should say legally, I, that's the better word, 
legally guilty before God. That's the scapegoat analogy. Our sins were imputed to him. That's a legal analogy. He was legally guilty before God. If Christ died for all, then all would be saved. But the Bible teaches all won't be saved, therefore Christ didn't die for all. Or, you could say, there's a problem with this view. But, what's the response? Christ's atoning death, it procures salvation for all, but it only applies it to some, namely those who believe. All are potentially savable, not all are actually saved. If Christ paid the penalty for all sin in full, there's nothing left to pay. But those in hell pay for their own sins, therefore this view is false. Again, what Christ procured is not automatically applied to everyone. It must be accepted and received by faith. It's unjust for God not to punish a sinner for his sins. But what God does instead is punish the innocent. Therefore, this is unjust. The atonement says this. Penal substitution only affirms that God must punish all sins. It doesn't follow from this that he must punish all sinners. We have legal analogies that fit this that I don't have time to go through. Finally, to forgive a debt means not to require payment for it. But God does require payment for sin from Jesus. Therefore, in no sense does he forgive sin on this view. Well, since the death of Christ satisfied God, God can in turn offer us a pardon for our sins. Quote, forgiveness in this legal sense is the declaration that the penalty has been fully paid and therefore we are free. There's not this, it's not this, it's not like personal forgiveness between just two friends. This is more like a judge and somebody who the judge is obligated to mete out justice to. Okay, so we defined some terms. We gave a biblical basis. We talked a little bit about the significance. We handled some objections. If you have any questions, I'll be hanging around at the end. Let's pray. Oh, and if you want to read Romans 3, you can see more information on this. All right, let's do it. Our Father in heaven, Thank you that Christ was both willing and able to take and satisfy for the penalty of sins. We would literally be without hope, and yet now we have a glorious hope, the coming resurrection, where we get to see our Savior face to face. Please help us to apply this as we come before you on a regular basis in prayer and in petition, knowing that not because of anything we've done, but because of your mercy. Help us know you and the power of your resurrection, fellowship and sharing in Christ's sufferings and becoming like him in his death, we might somehow obtain to the resurrection of the dead. We love you. We thank you for this time. Please help us understand this better. In Jesus' name, amen.